Bradley Neal and I'm a first year postgraduate researcher studying urban butterfly conservation at the Open University. I'd like to talk to you today about my route into education from a GCSE D student at best, a U in A-level biology because I didn't show up to the exam, to a BSc from the OU and an MSc and then finally starting my PhD uh, last year. I'm going to cover some mental health struggles, a touch on homophobia and then eventually talk about butterflies and my PhD project so far. The OU Grad School have sponsored this podcast and it represents my own views. The start of my educational journey was, like most, during compulsory education. School wasn't really the right time for me to be learning. Between home life, a mixture of feelings surrounding my sexuality and a quite homophobic environment, specifically at schools at the time, I didn't really feel like I fit in anywhere. Section 28 meant that local authorities in the UK were prohibited from describing what ministers at the time called promoting homosexuality to children. This was enacted in 1988, but wasn't repealed in England until 2003 when I was 14 years old. This law changing didn't really shift the culture, and the prevailing attitude where I went to school at least was still a homophobic one. I really hated being at school, but ironically I really loved science and learning. I'd always wanted to be a scientist, but I never did my homework and I never turned up to lots of the lessons um, out of what I understand now is pretty severe depression and anxiety. My head was clouded at the time with questions on identity, where I fitted into the world, and with no support then, or in fact it being outright illegal to discuss sexuality at school, my mind was addled with wondering what I considered at the time to be wrong with me. Among other reasons, I felt like there was little place for me here. I suffered severely with depression, which went undiagnosed until I was 25. I had just accepted that this is the way that people felt. Maybe they dealt with it better than me, and I was weak, or that I was a bad person for just being different. I kind of felt that I deserved to feel this way because of my shortcomings, and because I was constantly upsetting people by failing people at school or not having a girlfriend. Um, it, it made me feel awful. This unsurprisingly feelings of guilt um, is is a symptom of depression which unfortunately at the time no one picked up on. Among my best results were a handful of D's and worse and a couple of C's. On a deal that I would do some resits I actually managed to get into sixth form. I didn't know what else to do at the time and there was a huge pressure to do well at school from lots of other people despite everything so I just forced myself to go even though I didn't want to but again I, I felt like I didn't fit anywhere and that this is just something other people said I should do so I should probably do it. Well I sort of did it. I didn't actually show up to most of it, <laughs> spending most of sick form uh, playing video games on my friend's sofa. When exam time came I didn't show up to a lot of them out of apathy and just fatigue of life in general. At this time however I was obsessed with aquariums and fish tanks, so along with species ID, scientific nomenclature, the nitrogen cycle, all the rest of all the chemistry uh, related things that come with keeping fish, I had a clear and obvious passion for science, but it just didn't fit in with the framework of being at school, of being at sixth form, or or the, just the, the mode of life that I was in at the time. Like I've said a few times, I had no place, I fit nowhere. I kind of related to no one. So to to think that I had no other option than to do what everyone else was telling me to do, even though I didn't want to do it, it just didn't work for me. Probably part of my passion for science was because I lived near the Dorset coast, which makes for some beautiful nature 
a wealth of fossils and some stunning natural history. I really love museums and particularly the Natural History Museum in London and when I was there when I was very young one of Mary Anning's fossil ichthyosaurs really fascinated me when I was in my early teens. The Natural History Museum is full of all kinds of strange and interesting creatures but something about prehistoric and then eventually modern life under the sea really hooked me. Sadly at the time any chance of actually working in science was just a dream and later on I would accept that this is just a passing thing. People like me, poor, gay, something which I still consider to be a bad and humiliating thing, and of course uneducated, can't do anything like that. So what I did instead, as I worked at a pet shop in Plymouth for four years, and spent most of the rest of my career in retail. I met some fantastic friends there though, so I'm kind of glad that things ended up that way in a sense. When I worked here in Plymouth, I met my best friend Ellen, and she's been absolutely fantastic. She's been here every day for me for the past 11 years. She proofread some of my undergrad work, proofread lots of my masters, and uh, she's been tasked with proofreading lots of my thesis. <laughs> In terms of education though, and general self-worth and self-confidence, when I met my husband, my life really started to change. He's an OU graduate himself, and when we moved in together, he showed me this little box of fossils that you get, or used to get, um, as, as part of the old Exploring Science module, an introductory module at the OU. Um, and when he handed it to me, because he thought I'd be interested, I was able to identify every single fossil in this pack straight away. With this, he insisted that I would, should get myself a degree, citing that I obviously had the knowledge and I just needed to apply it formally. At the time, remember, my self-confidence was so incredibly low. The failure in academic work was so ingrained in me, I just expected that to be the latest disappointment, my latest attempt at being a scientist, that would fail and teach me again that it wasn't possible and that I just couldn't do it. A tease at a future that I wish I could have, but couldn't realistically obtain. I was so adamant that this would be impossible that he even went so far a step to actually do the registration on my behalf, truly knowing and truly believing that I could do it and that he would back me all the way. He really is great. I started my degree at the OU in 2014. I initially did natural science and then switched away from it when there was a module dedicated to maths. <laughs> That's like a funny anecdote now, but I was genuinely afraid of it, um, like a lot of people probably are. Uh, I would eventually switch to environmental science, which is what I graduated with in the end. I'm a first generation student, but imposter syndrome is probably something that's pretty familiar to those of us in education or academia. I suffered from this severely during my undergraduate degree. I simply could not believe someone with my academic background was achieving the results I did. They were nothing spectacular, nothing outside of the national average I suppose, but they were absolutely huge for me as an individual. Seeing a 2-1 on a results page when I was used to getting such disappointed below average results was really something special, but at the time I was still stuck in my own head, believing that every single score I got was because of a sort of administrative error. I was, I was expecting that I would go through a period of waiting with anxiety ridden feelings as many I'm sure are familiar with and then expecting my good score to update with a much worse one something that I'd be more akin to seeing. Of course this never happened it's just an anxious irrational worry. Before I got my official results and classification I was already actually enrolled to study an MSc in Conservation Ecology at Oxford Brookes University, 
This step was so gigantic for me, it was difficult to describe my feelings at the time. I didn't even have the courage to sign up to my own degree and had to have my husband do it, but here I was, stood in front of a really good university, doing something I was extremely passionate about. Now the imposter syndrome was going because I was doing so well. I felt like I would worked so hard to get here that I deserved to stand here. But this feeling was just turned into something else. New expectations. I would constantly compare my results and my scores to my peers and my friends who already had master's degrees. I felt I couldn't slip below the score of a merit under any circumstances and I'd feel utterly humiliated if I was one of the dumbest in the group. I know how that sounds, really, and in an irrational anxious mind, in a culture obsessed with ranking and comparisons, I couldn't think of much else. I absolutely burned myself out trying to achieve this distinction. I worried non-stop about grades and results, and even if they went, when they came back high, I always expected something was going to happen to ruin this, like I'd crash out on the thesis, or do really, really badly right at the end, and then scrape by with a bare pass, or just flat out fail. Again, these feelings from being young were still stuck in my head, and they were really trying to, really hard to break. I actually remember submitting my first ever piece of work, which was a management plan for woodland butterflies, something that I would go on to become quite obsessed with and I sat there and I calculated using the degree regulations and and how they worked out your final classification how I was still able to pass depending on which different results I got so I was thinking if I get 50% on this then I'd have to get 80% on something else and you know I was really really overly obsessing with this kind of thing and it was harming my health having said all of that and everything that was going on in my head, I actually really loved it at Brooks. I really thrived, and I did actually achieve this distinction in the end. It was really hard-earned, and while I was again not expecting to actually leave with one right up until the day the results came in, I kept thinking it was all a fluke, and I I would eventually be confirmed and outed as a failure. The imposter, of course, at the last minute. Of course, this didn't happen. And I was fortunate enough to have a really good support network of friends and, of course, my fantastic husband, along with the drive and determination to do my best without ever cutting any corners. This wasn't all perfect, though. I started in 2019, so you can probably tell where this is going to go. The pandemic cut off the last half. The real impact of this was that my thesis, which involved fieldwork with butterflies, was completely impossible when fieldwork restrictions were introduced. I had to redesign my project to be a desk study, and this is here where I'm actually going to start talking about some of my research. So, for my masters, I performed a metapopulation viability analysis for woodland butterflies in woodland habitat patches fragmented by agricultural land. Put simply, I was interested in how woodland specialist species of butterflies coped with moving between their woodland habitat patches and flying over very hostile environments to wildlife such as farmlands. A metapopulation is a small population within a network of other populations and essentially for them to function correctly butterflies need to be able to move between each habitat patch. I wanted to try and understand which species and their ecological requirements could manage a fragmented habitat within this hostile matrix of agricultural land in between. I got some good results from my models but they had severe limitations as a lot of information that I needed to know about how butterflies move, 
how far they can move, why they decide to move between fragments of habitat is simply poorly explored. What I originally wanted to do is I wanted to continue on with my pre-pandemic work. I wanted to carry on and look at butterflies that had speciated without any morphological change. So basically butterflies that had evolved on a genetic level but not a physical level. They look the same but perhaps they behave differently. This was going to lead me on to a PhD at Brooks actually about trying to use uh, a, a method of ancient DNA analysis. So looking at museum samples of old butterflies, sequencing their genome and looking at contemporary current species caught from the field and how they've genetically changed over time. I actually applied to a PhD at Brooks during my master's and it was probably one of the most awkward and disastrous interviews I've ever had. <laughs> I came as prepared as I could be but I wasn't as ready as I needed to be. The first half of the interview was a total train wreck and went really really badly and uh, and, uh, and unsurprisingly and clearly uh, I didn't get in. It's kind of funny to uh, look back at now but um, you know it's kind of quite humiliating at the time and and I did get a kind of pang of um, you know why did I bother trying you know obviously I was going to fail all those feelings kind of came back a bit but ultimately um, it actually really helped support my interview when I eventually did get one um, with Centre and at the OU. So my first point of contact at the OU after I've written my research proposal was to Yosef Arya. He was a tutor on a module when I was an undergraduate and I actually saw him again in a field school for a different module and he recognised me and remembered me and we had a chat. Then later on he kindly provided me for a reference for my master's application in 2019. So he was the first person I thought of and someone that I thought was pretty great and really wanted to work with and I sent him my draft proposal and basically said to him do you have any contacts interesting interested in working with me um, and how, how do I basically turn this this proposal into a PhD to my delight he did and he introduced me to Phil Wheeler who's now my primary supervisor we all turned my idea into an actual PhD proposal and into what it is in now and they both supported me and pushed for center DTP funding which I was eventually awarded both my supervisors are really great and they've been really helpful and constructive and supportive. My actual PhD, finally, is about urban woodland butterflies and how they're able to move between woodland habitat patches within an urban matrix rather than an agricultural one this time. I'm sure you can see how this relates to what I did for my masters. Now, however, I'm looking at Milton Keynes itself and how its grid road corridor system may potentially function as pathways for butterflies to move between large habitat patches for breeding or forage. The value of this is the high degree of biodiversity possible in urban spaces, but also the severe and near permanent toll that they take on the local environment, as there are a pretty dramatic change of land use from patchy woodlands to a car park is dramatically different for anybody. Therefore, we need to be able to understand how animals survive in urban spaces to preserve biodiversity, which more generally supports the provision of ecosystem services, many of which are critical to humans. For example, pollination. Uh, Milton Keynes is quite good at flood defences, sequestering carbon to control climate change, and so on. 
So before I get into the greater detail of my PhD, I'd like to talk to you about some butterfly basics, why butterflies are in decline generally, and then I can go on to what's happening due to urbanization and what my PhD actually aims to do. So when an adult female lays her eggs, she carefully selects a plant on which to lay them by tasting them for biochemical signatures in the leaf to check if plants are suitable enough for her young. When hatched, caterpillars are voracious eaters. Starting life in an egg, many species begin eating the case the moment they awaken, and when they've emerged, they begin their principal role in their larval form by eating and growing. They are herbivorous at this stage of life, and many species are limited to just a few, or in several cases, only one species of plant which they are adapted to eat. If an egg is laid on a plant which is not a typical larval food plant for that species, they will almost certainly not survive. After periods of ecdysis, which is the scientific term for shedding, the caterpillars will shed their final skin to reveal a chrysalis. These chrysalids are actually the caterpillar's body, unlike a cocoon. They aren't inside the chrysalis, they are the chrysalis. In this form, they break down into their constituent chemical parts, basically a goo, and reform as an adult butterfly, a transitional change known as metamorphosis. Adults hatch from their chrysalis after a period of a few days, or, or maybe a week depending on the species, and find somewhere safe to dry their, their wings. Their wings will now fill with a blood-like fluid called hemolymph, and give them their rigid structure. Afterwards, they'll take off in search of a warm spot, nectar, or in some species, straight away, a mate. Even this small introduction to the butterfly life cycle makes some points clear. Particular plants must be present, specific to the butterfly laying eggs on them. These plants must be sufficiently abundant to be able to host a viable local population and have their own needs met as an individual organism and the area in which butterflies emerge is specific to where they undergo a metamorphosis between caterpillar and adult and therefore needs warm sunny patches and a diverse range of floral resources for both egg laying and nectar acquisition. Addressing these basic criteria are principal points of planning in any conservation intervention for butterflies, which is provision of a habitat of a suitable quality with the particular types of plants certain species require. Some habitat specialists require plants with very particular conditions. For example, one species, the glamphil fritillary, are limited to a type of plantain, which only grows in highly disturbed environments and actually does occur in the crumbling cliffs of Dorset. These regularly disturbed habitats are indicative of primary successional states, essentially a young or regularly disturbed natural space where habitats are typically not overcompeted by fast-growing grasses or old woody vegetation, which can shade out slower, lower-growing plants in the herbaceous layer. Other species can tolerate shade and rely on food plants which are much more widespread and difficult to outcompete, such as the meadow brown butterfly, which is very widespread and uses several common grasses, such as Festuca, Agrostis and Poa, as its larval food plant. Therefore, a landscape with a variety of different habitat types is the most appropriate direction for butterfly conservation management. Legendary lepidopterist F.W. Frohawk in the early 1900s wrote that the pearl border fritillary was so abundant one year he found them completely impossible to count. There are historical records of this species in Milton Keynes, but it's since been extinct since the 1970s. 
exists only in the UK in a few local populations and that's not widespread or anywhere near as abundant as it used to be. This is likely due to a few factors, but one of which is certainly the way woodlands are managed now. Compared to the regular cycle of cutting trees at the base and allowing to regrow an act of harvesting known as coppicing, trees are, and woodlands are typically left to overgrow, become too shaded, and this destroys the habitat and specific microclimate which this species required. This is a fairly good example of how habitat management and land use change changes the environment and therefore changes the quite specific cycles which lots of species, not just butterflies, require to thrive. I'm particularly interested in woodland butterflies. These are other butterflies that can just only survive in the woodland exclusively or ones which spend some, of the, some or most of their life in a woodland. There are also lots of species of butterflies that don't specifically live in the woodland but they are associated with the woodland edge. As woodland specialist species need the woodland habitat to survive in, they can become easily isolated if there aren't enough woodlands close enough for them to move between. This can cause local extinctions due to inbreeding, lack of space or lack of resources. And of course, we don't want this. So connecting woodlands together by creating a network of habitat corridors can allow them to move between existing woodlands and increase their population numbers, genetic diversity and acquisition of resources. Where Milton Keynes comes into this is its grid road network. Our famous long roads and roundabouts are potentially great framework to look at how woodland butterflies move between woodland patches when their own patches have been broken apart by urbanisation. I aim to do this by producing a habitat map of Milton Keynes. This has already started and I've spent the past few weeks producing a map of all the trees in Milton Keynes and paving the way for a network analysis. Once I've got the data on all the roads and buildings and all the other features of a city, I'll be able to simulate butterfly behaviour. My essential aim is to produce a model of butterfly movement for a mixture of habitat specialist and habitat generalist butterflies. This will allow me to experiment with what types of surfaces butterflies can cross and which types they can't. This, unsurprisingly, can be a complicated process. Ultimately, I hope to be able to use this model to find areas of the grid roads which work as transport corridors for butterflies and which areas don't. You would have, of course, noticed that when you're driving around Milton Keynes, the roads are generally quite heavily vegetated, but what species are there, what density that they're in, and how they're managed makes a huge difference to their viability for movement potential for butterflies. Once this model is functioning, I can then find out where the breaks in the potential habitat network preventing butterfly movement are located. Then I'll be able to suggest a conservation management solution. Perhaps a hedgerow could be made longer, more trees could be planted, or a species of hedge entirely might be need changing, things of that nature. They are certainly high quality pathways for butterflies around the grid roads, but plenty of them, which I've observed already, aren't suitable at all. How much a row of trees or shrubs aid butterfly movement is a big part of my PhD, and I'm at the moment engaged in deciding whether or not areas, perhaps of non-native vegetation planted just to look nice, might actually function quite well as just a shady patch for some species to move between, or maybe actually they need entirely changing. Each type of surface, be it roads, dirt paths, shrubs, trees, car parks, etc., all have different resistance values. A habitat more hostile to a particular species of butterfly, 
or most species, like the car park in this example, will have a more resistant surface than the woodlands that maybe a specialist butterfly is used to. A resistance value is a numerical amount which a surface costs to move across. Here, this car park will have a very high resistance value, and the woodlands in this context will have the lowest resistance value. So let's consider a butterfly we might be familiar with, the speckled wood. These are small brown butterflies with small cream spots on them that you see very regularly in woodlands in Milton Keynes and the country at large. If we assign this butterfly with a value of 100 resistance points, it can then have this amount to spend on movement in a day. So if you imagine 100 points might allow it to move around the entire area of its native woodland in a single day, as this, again, woodland has a very low resistance value. If it leaves the woodland and attempts to cross a grassland which might have a higher resistance value, or maybe a road, or across a car park which has a higher resistance value still, we can calculate how far it might be able to travel depending on the surface type. The road might cost its entire 100 points per metre, so practically it simply wouldn't be able to cross it. In this hypothetical example, the grass might cost 20 points per metre, so we would be able to say that it could be able to travel 5 metres of grassland per day. If you've followed so far, you might be able to see how this can get quite complicated, but it will be extremely valuable when using a landscape scale model to work out where areas of the grid road network work as habitat corridors and which don't, and how I'll actually be able to suggest that we change that. Hopefully, once this is implemented, this means more butterflies getting around Milton Keynes, which is good for them and good to us. To do this is fairly complicated, as not all grid roads are equal in terms of habitat quality or quantity. It also involves understanding how far a butterfly can move and what might deter it from making a trip. I also need to understand what makes for good habitat corridor and what makes for a poor one, using evidence supported by both my fieldwork and understanding movement ecology through lots of modelling, mathematics and studying the literature. Butterflies are a great model species to study animal movement in urban areas. They are also closely associated with patchy habitats to begin with. They are also a huge bias of birds and mammals in exploring urban biodiversity, so some representation for insects, arguably the most important members of the animal kingdom, is essential. In addition to that, butterflies are what's known as a bio-indicator species, so this means that they can suggest the health of an ecosystem and imply the relative ecological function. For example, if butterfly numbers are high, then it's likely that many other species that are under-recorded or difficult to record, or simply not known to us, are likely to be thriving as well. The opposite is true as well though. Often a general decline in biodiversity can be first seen by a general decline of butterflies. In addition to that, of course, butterflies deserve conservation in their own right. They're a diverse, colourful and beautiful range of species full of character. They're key pollinators and are among government legislation for conservation action. They're also hugely popular with the public. Most people's concept of a spring or summer's day probably includes a colourful butterfly flitting by in the warm sunlight. Further still, the anthropocentric view of nature needs to be challenged. We don't have the sole right to exist on Earth at the cost of other species. Lepidoptera itself has existed for millions of years more than we have, and particularly in an urban context, we have literally built impassable structures around their homes and locked them into ever-shrinking patches. This needs to be addressed for a multitude of moral, ecological and socio-economic reasons.
When I finish my PhD, I want to continue my research and I eventually want a role in academia. I'm already an associate lecturer on the module Environment Responding to Change, which is something I absolutely love doing. Getting to know students from all over the country and helping them achieve their degrees is a really fulfilling thing to do. It's wild to think I'm on the other side of the screen just a few years after graduating myself. This time though, I've learned to accept my successes as I've worked incredibly hard to co overcome a lot of adversity to get here. I wouldn't have achieved this without the Open University. I'm so proud to be involved again as both a PGR and AL with an institution that does so much for so many. Both my husband and I came from poor backgrounds and wouldn't be accepted at any other university as undergraduates. Yet, I am here studying a PhD myself and he's graduating with his professional doctorate at LGMU in September. This shows how lives can really change from institutions and programmes which push for social mobility and equality as part of the philosophical approach to open education to everyone. This is something that I'll never let go. Thank you very much for listening and I hope you enjoyed my story of education and a little chat about butterflies. Thank you and goodbye.